Junior to all of you. Boy, what a deal. First day of the year, and here we are. We're gathered in his name. Okay, uh, if you don't mind, and even if you do mind, stand anyway. Just a few announcements I want to share with you. Number one, they can sit down, okay. <laughs> now you see why Charlotte was so important to me the whole time I was pastoring. I always need someone to keep me going the right direction. And that's been a task. Uh, the first announcement I want to make is, is that um, Margaret said on the way out as you're going home, Stop by the dessert thing. There'll be a little plate there, and there's some saran wrap, and you can take home some of those donuts. We have way more than we can, can use, and they'll get dried out before next year, so you must well take them home if you've got family at home. Mike and Tammy, you've got kids. They'd probably like to have a few of those donuts. Logan's sitting there grinning ear to ear, so, uh, so make sure you do that. Uh, a couple of other things. Uh, sympathy to the family of Bud Blessy. Bud went home uh, December 27th. His memorial service was held at Living Hope Church on Friday the 30th. 
Uh, also, Wes Aaron's dad, Ray Aaron's, passed away in Dece on December 27th as well. So you might send a note of condolences to them. And uh, to just say a little note in there to say thank you about those who are praying for uh, Joe Lauren. Uh, he's in St. Clair's and uh, it wouldn't be a bad thing if some of you stopped by and just said hello to Joe. So uh, that's about the only announcements that I have. So uh, let's uh, just turn it back over and you guys can go to it. for loving us, for caring for us, for being our Lord and Savior. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this day in your name. Your presence is felt, Lord. I just pray that we will honor you in all that we do and say. I thank you for this opportunity to worship, Lord, and also for the opportunity to give. Lord, help us to give freely, openly, with a thankful heart that is open to the needs of others. Lord, thank you so much for what you blessed us with. And guide us now this day, this week, this month, and this year. We thank you for this life, Lord. And uh, Lord, just uh, guide us, not only us, but our families, our friends, those who are especially in need, Lord. Just protect them this day. Give them comfort and peace only from you, Lord, we pray. In thy name, amen. <laughs>
Jim asked me what I was going to teach today, what I was, what I was going to learn you. And I told him nothing. What I'm going to try to do is get you to do what you already know you're supposed to do. Uh, I can't think of a better song to start the new year with than the one we just sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I sat and tried to figure out what I wanted to say this morning since it's the first day of the new year. And I decided I'd try to bring a few ideas that you already know uh, and encourage you to do them. Several years ago, there was a movie, and I think it was put out by, I think it was directed by Steven Spielberg. And in that movie, the whole premise of the movie uh, appeared to be that there had a computer that would know the future. And so they could know the future, and then knowing the future, they could find out the criminals who were going to, in the future, commit crimes, and they could arrest those people before the crime happened, and thereby change the the outcome. Now, as great as that sounds, I wonder what we would do if we knew the future. I suspect we'd be more like Biff in Back to the Future, and we'd get us a, a, a sports thing and go out and bet on the sports so that we could know we could win. I, I suspect that most of us, if we could know the future, would utilize it in order to help ourselves. A lot of people today are, are obsessed with trying to know the future. Uh, they peer into crystal balls, they read tea leaves, they cast horoscopes, uh, they go to fortune tellers. But the truth of the matter is, nobody knows the future. Um, that's the essence of what Solomon addresses when he, uh, in, in this passage in Ecclesiastes, and basically it says, Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? Since no man knows the future, Who can tell him what is to come? And of course we know that the answer is God. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. And the beginning from the end. Here we sit on the the muddy side of a used up year. Dangling our feet in the water of a new one. Just all fresh and exciting and, well, fresh anyway. We have no idea what this year is going to bring. Life is uncertain. Someone said that you can't say the word life without the word if. And there's truth to that. If. If reminds us of the uncertainty of life. How do we face the future? If everything is so uncertain... How do, we, how do we step out and, and, and launch into, the, into life this year without whining and whimpering and allowing the world to beat us up? What can we do about it? God has some things he says for us, and I, I, there's lots of them, but I, I, I selected just a few of them. I, I, I selected, first of all, I, I, was, I was accosted years ago and said my preaching was too negative, so today I'm going to do three negatives and three positives. I think that's balanced. Three don'ts and three do's. None of them are new. You know every one of them. The problem isn't what we know, it's the problem of what we do. The first one is... Don't presume on tomorrow. Proverbs 21 or 27 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. That word boast is an interesting word. It means don't be arrogant about your plans. Don't, don't, um, don't presume that you're going to be able to do all the things that you want to do. Life is uncertain. You may not be around all that long. Don't take for granted life. Christians are probably as guilty of that as anyone else. You would say, well, I'm not really presumptuous. I mean, after all, that's, that's not true. I, 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 that would, that's, I wouldn't do that. But think about it. Let me give you an example you can relate to. 
What was the last thing you did and didn't pray about it? Did you get your car and come to, work, come, to, come to the service? Did you pray about that before you got in the car to come? Then you were being presumptuous. Because you just presumed that you were going to be able to do that. We all struggle with the process of, of presumption. We all struggle with the idea that somehow I have some kinds of controls on my life. <laughs> we don't have much control. When we pray, we're asking for God's blessing. And I guess really what I'm saying is don't presume, pray. Don't presume, pray. Make everything of your life. Thessalonians says to pray always. That's really what I'm, what I'm, what I'm encouraging you to do. Pray always. Uh, prayer ought to be like breathing. Uh, I struggle with that. I don't know about you all, but I struggle with that. I, I wish that that, that was my, 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 my reflex, my, my default, as it were would be prayer. But my default tends to be self-protection or I, another good word for that is anger. That's a good default. Most of us fall into But what we need to do is fall into prayer. So first of all, don't presume. Learn how to pray. Second of all, don't panic. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. You know what worry is? Someone wrote, worry is stewing without doing. Worry is the attempt to control life, to play God. This is one of those redundant questions, or not redundant, but um, rhetorical questions. Do you think if you worry enough, you can change the outcome? Matthew says... No matter how much you worry, you can't add one inch to yourself. If it would have happened, I'd be seven feet tall. I'd have big, bulgy muscles. As it is, I'm shrinking. Every place except worry. Worry is such a negative thing. Worry never works, though. But we serve a merciful God. I, one of the things about God that I love is he never gives us life in a lump. He gives us life in little bits at a time. Someone wrote, inch by inch, anything's a cinch. But by the yard, it's all hard. And life is particularly that way. You know, if you live life, if you live life as God serves it to you, Life is really enjoyable. But if you live life worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, you spend an awful lot of time destroying what you could be enjoying. First of all, don't procrastinate. I mean, don't... don't uh, Third of all is don't procrastinate. Don't presume about tomorrow. Don't panic about tomorrow. And then don't procrastinate until tomorrow. We are terrible people about procrastination. I am. Maybe I should put it that way. The Living Bible rendition of Ecclesiastes 11.4 says it like this. It says, if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. I wonder how many of us promised last year, last January, this year, I'm going to take off, or I'm going to add on, or I'm going to do, or I'm going to accomplish, or I'm going to read through the scriptures, or I'm going to, and here we are, looking back at that wore out year and said, missed it again, didn't get it done. I have a, comp a problem with that. I have so many, pro if, if you can't die until your projects are over, I'm going to live forever. 
I have stuff. One of the irritations of my wife is I have stuff. Little projects started all over the place, and many of them unaccomplished. Someone wrote, procrastination is my sin. It only brings me sorrow. I know I ought to change my life. In fact, I will tomorrow. That's the problem, you see. Three things not to do. Don't presume on life. Don't panic about life. And third, don't procrastinate about life. But there are some positives. As I was thinking about how I could bring those positives in and what I could utilize for those positives, I was reminded of the book of Joshua. I like the book of Joshua because it, it, uh, it's one of those books that kind of nudges you along in your faith. Uh, it encourages you. Uh, if you turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1, I want to read just a few verses for you. I know this is not how I, uh, how I was taught to preach in college. You know, I was taught in, in college you're supposed to have your text and then you develop your text into the message and all the rest of that. And I took a, a, a text and then I used that for a kickoff point and then I go off into nowhere land and then I come back halfway through, through it and then I begin to develop another text. You're not supposed to do that, but I'm doing that today, so just so you know. Joshua chapter 1 verse 2 says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will trot upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. Let me set the scene for you a little bit. God has set the children of Israel free from the Egyptian slavery, given them wonderful deliverance, uh, drowned most of Pharaoh's army, brought them out into, the, in, in, into the, the area and said, now what I want you to do is, is go into the promised land. And they had the great idea, let's send over some spies and see what it really is like. And so they sent out some spies and the spies came back and, and ten of them, ten spies, and, and, and all of them said, oh man, the people are giants, it's horrible, we can't do it. And two of them, Joshua and and uh, Caleb, thank you. <laughs> what happens when you get old? Uh, Joshua and Caleb, I just read this story too. Uh, Joshua and Caleb came back and said, man, we can do it, let's go. And the people grumbled and God said, fine, that's how you want it. You don't get to go. Everybody 20 years old or not, you're going to all die before you ever get in the land. So you have this picture of the nation of Israel. They have this opportunity to step off out of Egypt into captivity and into the promised land. It's a wonderful place of, of grapes and, uh, that people could carry on stakes. And, and it was just a wonderful place. And by the way, those spies went in and in 40 days they examined every corner of the promised land. It would have taken the nation of Israel about two weeks to go from Egypt into the promised land. But because of their disobedience, because of their fear, they spent 40 years wandering around in the desert. Now the younger generation grew up, the older generation died off, and God said, okay, Joshua, now's the time. Joshua knows that once they enter the promised land, they're going to be facing at least seven enemy nations. They're strong nations. They're, uh, they're battle-hardened. The Israelites were... They'd been slaves. They didn't know nothing about combat. They didn't know anything about armaments. They'd been wandering around in the desert doing basically nothing for 40 years until people died off. God appears to him and says, Joshua, my servant Moses is dead. 
you and all these people now cross the Jordan River. Go into the land that I'm giving to you and I guarantee you success. Basically, he said in this first part of Joshua, there were three things that he encouraged Joshua to do. In fact, he told Joshua, you do these three things, you'll have success. These are the three, thring, three, the three things that I'd like to encourage you with today. God says, I want you to possess the land. So the first thing that God told Joshua is, set my plan into action. Before Joshua could do that, there was something else he had to do, though. And that is, he had to let go of the past. Now, I don't know what your year has been. This, this, this last wore out, used up year. I don't know what it's been. It may have been wonderful. And you may look, be looking back on that and saying, yes, boy, I tell you, I'm going to take... You better not do that. You better look back at that back one and say, that's over. I'm moving on into a new year. Joshua was really a novice leader. Moses had been Joshua's mentor. Moses was an incredible man of faith. Moses was the one whom God had reached down and sovereignly picked up out of Israel and put him at the lead and said, you're going to lead my people out. Moses was the one who stood by the Red Sea and lifted his staff and the water spread. Moses was the one who went up on the mountain and got the, 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 tab, the tablets of, of, of the law from God. Moses was the one who, whose face shined so much that everybody had to look away. Moses was the great one. Joshua had to feel terribly insignificant. So in the very beginning of the, this, this book of Joshua, we find that God says to Moses, or to Joshua, Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. But you're not, and I'm not. Go lead my people. I have a plan for your life. I have a plan for the nation of Israel. Let's work the plan. Verse 10 and 11 says, So Joshua ordered the officers and the people, go throughout the camp, tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now we're going to cross the Jordan and we're going to go in and take possession of the land. The scripture says in Proverbs chapter 19, or 16, verse 9, in his heart, a man plans his course. But the Lord determines his steps. Or as another translation puts it, you should make plans, counting on God to direct you. As we move into a new year, all of us are sitting here and we may have plans ahead of us. Those plans are known by God. Romans says that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. And the purpose of all things working together for good is that we would become living representatives of Christ. Now, if all things are working together, then what that tells us is that God knows exactly what he has planned for our lives. There are no mistakes. There are no God coming up saying, oh man, I didn't consider that. There are no places in which, in which we slip by or we slip up. God knows the plan he has for your life. There's not one person in this room that God does not know exactly what this year holds. And thank God he doesn't tell us. We simply need to put the plan into motion.
When we make plans, asking God to give us direction, that's wisdom. When we make plans without considering God, that's presumption. We've already talked about that. Don't presume, don't panic, don't procrastinate. But seek God's face and then move. The second thing that Joshua was told to do is stay in the word. Listen to verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be very careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. God says, Joshua, I'm guaranteeing you excess if you'll be very careful to obey all the law. And the way you do that is not to turn to the left or the right. In other words, don't get sidetracked. We Christians get sidetracked so easily. We get caught up in, in life. You get a new job and all of a sudden you, you just don't have time to spend time in the Word. We don't have time for prayer. We don't have time to be in church. Sometimes it's a hobby. You know, that Minnesota here, that nice, flashy new boat, or the camper. All of a sudden, things we know we should do we aren't too good at doing. We get sidetracked. When, when, when Joshua is told, man, pay attention to the law, don't move to the left or to the right, stay right on track, don't get off track, what he's saying is, Joshua, pay attention to the priorities in your life. And priority number one for each one of us ought to be our relationship to God. And you have a relationship to God through Spending time in the Word, through prayer, and through assembling with His people on a regular basis. Verse 8, God says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Three ways he gives here for us to stay in the word. First of all, talk about it. He says, don't let this word depart out of your mouth. In other words, what he's saying is you need to be talking about the word of God. How much do you talk about what God's word means to you, to other people? How much do you share God's word with other people? How much do you just converse about what the scripture says? So that's, what, that's what that passage says. Don't let that word of the law depart out of your mouth. It's, it's, it's don't, don't stop talking about the word. Don't stop talking about how the law affects your life. Don't, don't stop talking about what happens when you applied God's word to your life or, or what you learn in devotions that morning or I know, this is ugly. I, it, it pinches, because every one of us falls short in this. I understand that. Again, I'm not trying to teach you anything new. I'm just trying to prod you to do what you know you're supposed to do. Talk about it. The importance of small groups should be not about to talk about the problems that you have. It ought to be talk about the things that God is doing in your life. How God can help, in, no matter what the circumstances, how does God's word change our lives? That's the power of small group. You can't benefit from what God is doing in my life if I don't share that with you. And I can't benefit from what God is doing in your life if you don't share that with me. First of all, constantly talk about it. 
Second of all, he says, meditate on that word. Think about it. You say, Pastor, I've heard that word meditate over and over again. What the heck does meditate mean? I don't know how to meditate. Sure you do. You know what worry is? Worry is negative meditating. So see, every one of us knows how to meditate. Worrying is, oh, my, all these bad things are going to happen. My life is going to fall apart. I'm not feeling well. My toes hurt. My back aches. I got my bad headache. I, I just feel terrible. Meditation is, man, God is so powerful. God is so good. God loves me. God's promised in his word that if I'll simply obey him, he'll care for me. God says, I know the end from the beginning. I know your name. I know how many hairs are on your head. You are valuable to me. I sent my son into the world to die for you. Meditation is worry in reverse. Meditation is giving God the right to do whatever he wants to do in your life. You think about that. You peruse that. You, you chew on it. So God tells Joshua, I want you to talk about the word. I want you to think about the word. I want you to meditate on the word. I want you to wrap yourself around the word. And then he says, don't just think about it. Don't just talk about it. Do it! It's easy to talk about the word. It's easy to think about the word. It ain't so easy to do it. And that's what we're called to do. The third thing he says is step out in faith. Do it. Faith is an action word. We've made faith, we've made faith a noun. And it's really a verb. Faith is what we do. I've used the illustration of a chair before, but the same is true of an airplane. You can't say, I have faith in an airplane and never get in it and fly. Faith is a, is a wonderful word. But it's only a wonderful word when it becomes a verb. When it does what it's supposed to do. I can't say I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and let it go at that. Big deal. Satan believes that. Faith is not real until it becomes active in our life, until that commitment to Jesus Christ moves beyond a mental ascent to a transition of our life. When what I believe changes how I act, faith has taken place. But I can believe, and it doesn't affect my life, faith has not taken place. I want you to get that. Faith is when what I believe changes how I behave. If behavior doesn't change, faith hasn't transpired. I could spend a whole morning talking about that. But you already know all that. The process is, allow your faith to change your behavior. We're talking about things you already know. We're supposed to talk about the word, we're supposed to think about the word, and we're supposed to allow the word to transition in our lives, to, to change us from who we were to who God wants us to be, to transition us into a living representative of Jesus Christ. 
I want you to think about something. When Moses went to the Red Sea, they all lined up behind him, and Moses raised his staff, and the water backed up on both sides. And they walked through with a mountain of water on both sides. But if you read the book of Joshua, Joshua comes to the Jordan, and he tells the priests, what I want you to do is I want you to step out into the water, and when your feet step in the water, God will act. And if you read the text, what you find out, I think it's about three chapters down the road, I think it's chapter three, somewhere in there, I don't know, let me look here. Yes, it's chapter 3. And you can go back and read this later. But when they stepped into the water, the scripture says that God acted and the waters began to pile up. But if you follow the text, what it says is the waters piled up a long way off. And they have a little town that they named where the, where the water was piling up. It happened, it happened the moment the priest stepped into the water. God acted, but he acted way upstream. Now what happened? The Jordan is at flood stage. Water is everywhere. And the scriptures make it clear, Jordan is at flood stage. When those priests stepped into the water, God stacked it up way back there. And then what happened to all this water that was... At flood stage, between where they were and where God acted, is so all that water ran back in. What happened really is, and we don't see this particularly in the scripture, but what happened is, is the, the priest stepped out and their toes got in the water, and Joshua said, Go on! And they stepped out and they got up to their knees, because all that water back there is rolling together. And they stepped out a little further, and the chest kept, the water chest kept coming up. And they kept walking. And as they walked out, the water began to recede. It doesn't say that they walked in dry land. Because faith is like that. Faith requires us to step out even when we can't see God's results. God had done his thing. God had already acted. God was already at work. But where Joshua and the priests and the people were, there was no evidence that God was at work. And they were still expected to step out and walk across that water. Take 12 big stones, each one of you grab a stone, we're going to go out and we're going to make a, we're going to make a, 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 a monument right in the middle where, it's, where, where, we, where we're all going to do this. It's an incredible story. We read over it so much we miss that aspect of it. But that's what faith is. Faith is moving even when you can't see God at work. It's probably the hardest part of faith. Fear is our worst enemy. God tells Joshua three times in the first chapter. Chapter 6, he says, be strong and be courageous. Verse 7, he says, be strong and very courageous. In verse 9, he says, be strong and courageous. What does that tell us? I'll tell you what it tells us. It tells us Joshua was scared spitless. And he obeyed. Verse 9, God says, Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, because the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Terrified and discouraged. 
two of Satan's most powerful tools. Fear keeps us in the desert. Remember I told you that they could have went from Egypt into the promised land in two weeks, but it took them 40 years, all because of fear. Satan loves to use fear. God wants us to find courage. God loves to test our faith. God doesn't test our faith so that he can find out if we have faith. Don't misunderstand that. God uses, tests our faith so that we can find out what our faith is. And so much of the time, <laughs> we stumble. The first steps of faith are always the hardest. When I became a Christian, I had spent my whole life hating everybody and being angry with everyone. Alcohol was my best friend. <clears throat> Christians were my worst enemy. And then the Lord reached down and thumped me on the head. And I became a Christian, born again from the bottom of my shoes to the top of my head and even the hair on it. And the lady who led me to Christ said, now the most important thing for you to do is to tell people every day that you're a Christian. And then I went home to my family that I had fought with for years, who I tried to kill both of my brothers. The people who knew every aspect of me. And she said, the important thing for you to do is to share your faith. I don't know that I've ever done anything that was more difficult for me than sharing my faith with my family. First of all, because none of them are Christians. <clears throat> and they thought that I had gone over the edge. Then I shared it with my girlfriend, and she said, oh, you'll get over it. You've just never had any religion in your life. You'll get over this. Thank God I didn't. Those were hard things to do. Telling people about my faith today is not that difficult. It's who I am. But you have to take those first steps. When you get on a new job, I went to work at Ford painting cars. And I was going to kind of be incommunicado. I was just going to go in there and paint cars. No, the guy that hired me came in. He stood up in the middle of the, of, of the, uh, of the assembly line and said, Now you guys listen up. This fellow's a preacher, and he's going to straighten you all out. And God exposed me just like that. But because of that, I had the opportunity to talk to a gal who was painting cars right across to me about her faith in Jesus Christ. And she made a profession of faith. And the next weekend, she brought her boyfriend, who was a hell's angel into our church, sat down in the front row, and I shared the gospel of Christ with him. Brought into my house, and he bawled his eyes out, but would not make a profession of faith. All because God exposed me. The steps of faith are critical. I'm out of time. God has already defeated our sin. God has already given us victory. But we're still standing in the water. You've got to take the next step.
If you want to see the miracles God's going to do in your life, you got to tie these things together. The Apostle Paul said, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Everything God wants me to do, I can accomplish through him. There is not one thing God wants me to do that I can't do with him. If God wanted me to stand in my head in the middle of the freeway and stack grease BBs, I could do that if that was his call on my life. Not because I can do it, but because God can do it. I can master every circumstance that comes my way if I have a living faith in Christ. I can master every illness, every failure. I can master death in my family. I can master losing a loved one. I can master unemployment. I can master anything if I can rest in my faith. Let me just give you these. Plan for the Lord. Put your faith in Him. Don't presume. Don't panic. Learn to pray. Learn to take God's word and put it in your mind. Speak it in your mouth. Meditate on it. And then live it out. Demonstrate to the world that there's hope in Christ. And you do that by how you live. See, I didn't tell you nothing you didn't know. We believers, we Christians, and let's face it, it's January 1st. Who's going to be in church except Christians? The rest of them are all at home nursing their head. <clears throat> I did that a lot of years. I know about it. Christians are here. That's why I'm preaching to you. It's not about what they do. It's what we do. And how we live our lives infects how they see us. And if we look just like them, what's the difference? Live for Christ. Live aggressively for Christ. Live visibly for Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our time together. I pray that you would take these simple thoughts and drill them into our hearts that we could move beyond our selfish self-will and see the call you have in our lives to infect the world with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Gentlemen, if I could have you come forward, we'll observe communion. Go ahead, you can serve. We will observe communion together. We'll all take the bread, and then we'll take the wine or the cup, and we'll hold those, and then we'll take them together. One of the wonderful aspects of our faith is demonstrated in this simple act. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal, one hungry, another drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? 
Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, he's talking about Christians living their lives for themselves. What he wants us to do is live our lives for others. And he says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
communion for so many years has been constituted as something that we do for us. But the truth of Paul's words are really that it is the design of it is to proclaim Christ to the world. It is for us to bind together around a common table to share a common element. But the design is to bring such unity among us that Christ is seen by the world. The purpose of communion is to bring unity to the body of Christ. A unity so visible that it proclaims Christ to the world. Pray with me if you would. Father, as we come before you, we acknowledge these gifts are from you. You have provided them for us. You've provided this time for us. You've called us to come to this point and share common elements to reflect a unity unknown by the world. As we partake of the cup, as we partake of the bread, we ask, Father, that you would bless them both. That you would cause us to understand that as we partake of this, we partake of you. Spiritually, we become one. May that be the example the world sees in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as often as you do this, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Do what you know you're supposed to do. May God go with you today. I pray, I trust this will be a great day for you. Look forward to the year. God has great things in store for you. It doesn't matter how they look. Remember, He's already done His thing. It's just up to us. We'll walk through it, it'll be what He has for us. You're dismissed.